There was big news out of the U.S. last week for those who follow the ongoing debate over the state of free speech. FIRE, the preeminent free speech organization for higher education, is expanding beyond campus. The organization has now been renamed the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And my guest on the podcast today says its expanded mandate is a result of 2020, the worst year for free speech in his entire career. He wants us all to think deeply about why free speech is worth defending. Free speech works really well. It lets you know where the problems are in your society. It lets you be an authentic person to actually you know, live your truth. It's great for artistic innovation. It's great for comedy. It's great for science. So I think that the advantages of freedom of speech are sufficiently great that uh, countries decide they don't want it anymore are going to find that they're creating far more problems than they're solving. Greg Lukianoff is a free speech lawyer and the president and CEO of FIRE. He's also a documentary producer and a New York Times bestselling author. Most recently, he co-authored with Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Greg Lukianoff joins me for a wide-ranging conversation about free speech, viewpoint diversity, cancel culture, and how to survive the culture war. That's today on Lean Out. Greg, welcome to Lean Out. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on today. We're going to talk about the expansion of FIRE beyond campus and how it has been renamed the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression and the uh, state of free speech culture in America. But first, I want to start briefly with your own story and how you became an advocate for free speech values. You studied journalism and international relations in undergrad. What set you on the trajectory to uh, to running FIRE? Uh, great question. Um, you know, my joke is that my second earliest memory after my first birthday was with my Russian father and with a very strong emphasis on brutal honesty, um, which is pretty, pretty Russian and a ethnically Irish mom who grew up in Britain and had that sort of exaggerated sense of politeness um, that oftentimes, you know, immigrants can have, they, they want to be even more, you know, English than the English or more French than the French, you know, but she was in Britain. So my family had a little bit of an exaggerated sense of politeness on the other side. And I got a present from my auntie Rona that I didn't like. And it was the first present I remember ever getting that I, that I didn't honestly like. And I look back and forth to my mom and to my dad and to my mom, to my dad, thinking, I have to be polite. I have to be honest. I have to be polite. I have to be honest. I have to be polite. So, of course, I did what any good four-year-old would do. I broke out in tears. And I remember my older sister, Katie, um, saying, oh, baby, doesn't like a gift. So he does, he, he, he just cries. And, you know, I, I always joke that I, I wish I, I had the vocabulary then to be like, this is my first experience with the cultural paradox. <laughs> so, and that's also a way of saying, you know, first generation Americans, immigrants, a lot of times they, they kind of get what's different about America. And one of the things that is different about America than any other country in the world is um, free speech. Not to say that nowhere else has free speech, but our commitment to it is unusually strong. Uh, at least it has been historically. And my father's Russian, but he grew up in Yugoslavia and uh, we had to flee the Bolsheviks. And so you also have that family history of knowing how 
how bad totalitarianism can be and what happens when you when you stop protecting freedom of speech. So I was kind of born into it. Uh, but then I worked as a student at, uh, as a, a student journalist when I went to American University for undergrad. And nothing's going to radicalize you more than that, um, because people will come into your office. I was an editor uh, every day, practically, with, with some new reason why you have to fire this reporter or withdraw this column or apologize for this article. And seeing that in motion, you're like, wow, OK, so people know they're offended first. And then they come into the office and sometimes they're making up the rationale on the spot, but they're just looking for any rationale they can use. And I'm like, oh, wow, due to human nature, it makes a lot of sense that the First Amendment has to be very broad because mm. any exception that you allow is going to someone's someone's going to use it to try to censor speech they simply dislike, oftentimes simply having convinced themselves that, you know, the thing they don't like just happens to be something that isn't protected. So I hyper specialized in it in law school. I went, went I went to law school to do First Amendment law. Oh, that's one thing. The Communications Decency Act of 1995. Um, the uh, uh, I think it was finally passed in 96. And it was an attempt to ban indecency on the Internet. And it was just so crazily broad and vague that I was like, how on earth did Congress think this would stand up to constitutional muster? It took me a while to be cynical enough to realize I don't think they do think that. I think they, they actually were just relying on the, uh, on the um, Supreme Court to do their work for them, to keep them from, the, from this law stifling the Internet in, in, in the cradle. So I hyper specialized in First Amendment law. I took every class at Stanford Law School offered on it. When I ran out of free speech classes, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. I interned, uh, but uh, something I designed myself, I interned at the ACLU of Northern California, and I was still lucky to find a job because there just weren't that many First Amendment jobs. So Harvey Silverglate, the co-founder of FIRE, came out and found me and uh, brought me away from my my happy, cool life in San Francisco to be the first legal director of a then new organization, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Mm, wow. And so FIRE has just now expanded, as I mentioned, uh, beyond campus, uh, which has quietly been the plan for some time. But the events of 2020 accelerated that timeline. Talk to me about what FIRE was seeing during that year. Yeah. So people have been approaching us uh, with the idea that we should go beyond campus for almost as long as I've been around. But that really sped up since, say, I'd say about 2014, 2015, when some of the illiberal trends that Height, John Height and I saw um, that led to our original article in 2015 and then eventually the book. Um, so we we're already concerned that something had changed in people's attitude about freedom of speech. But I didn't I, I liked fire being narrow but deep. And I didn't want to even consider expanding beyond campus until I felt like we had sufficient coverage there. And one of the milestones that we passed that got me thinking, OK, actually, maybe maybe we're there is that we could answer if there was a major free speech on campus case, it might take us, a, you know, a couple of days or a couple or even a couple of weeks in some cases to really investigate it. But we could generally answer almost anything that popped up. And the the thing that we added to what we do is our research department. So we could actually now, and we're going to be coming out with new rankings uh, this year, which actually would be substantially different than the ones last year, because we, I think we've improved our technique. Once we could actually ask students on campus what they think about the atmosphere um, for free speech, that was a game changer as far as I was concerned, because then uh, I could also do the thing where we rank schools according to how good they are for free speech with this extremely valuable tool. And so we, we got there about 
about 2019, or at least we, we, we knew we were going to get there. So we started talking internally about, you know, people have been approaching us to do this forever, including people like Ira Glasser, a former executive director of the ACLU, uh, Ron Collins, who's a, a First Amendment scholar uh, and a historian. Uh, so we were thinking, okay, maybe maybe 2024, when we turn 25, we can, um, uh, maybe we announce that we're expanding then. But 2020 was just the worst year I have seen for free speech in the U.S., at least, probably in my lifetime. Uh, we, wow. we thought it was going to be a quiet year because most campuses were shut. And instead, you know, a busy year, we got a thousand case submissions. 2020, with 80, 85 percent of campuses shut, we got 1500 and they were much worse. They're much more ideological. And then you have things like people, people kind of gloss this over. Twitter can be just a, it's a place that where you, you, you constantly feel gaslit on Twitter around these issues. Yeah. But it was pretty remarkable that you had 150 left leaning people sign a Harper's letter saying that our Overton window is, is too small and people are getting canceled, even though they didn't use the word canceled. And that got dismissed. Uh, the and then within the course of like eight weeks, people like Barry Weiss, James Bennett, uh, Matty Iglesias, Andrew Sullivan, Glenn Greenwald, they all stepped down citing uh, citing intolerance. Uh, those who could speak about it, James, James Bennett couldn't, uh, at, at their institutions. In the case of Matty Iglesias and Glenn Greenwald, institutions they helped found or actually mm -hmm. founded. Mm -hmm. So it really was, it, it was a, a year where we seemed to be kind of losing our minds. And at the same time on the Twitters, <laughs> you know, everyone's like, oh, this isn't really happening. It's kind of like, really? This is, uh, so I'm, I'm working on a book called Canceling of the American Mind because I'm I'm kind of stuck with, with gerunding of the American mind, so, you know. Um, <laughs> and, in, and in this case, it really is me and I'm, I'm co-authoring it with 21-year-old 20, wunderkind um, Ricky Schlott, yes. um, who, who writes for the Post and and for for reason, really way she's an incredible writer, uh, but really just trying to put it in one place. Not only was cancel culture real, it was historic. When you look at the other moments in censorship history in the United States, even the Red Scare, there were a lot of there were a lot of professors who were who, who were fired during that period. Uh, sometimes it can be hard to figure out what what for. But in that case, at least a lot of schools actually stood by their Marxist professors and said, nope, we're, we're, we're willing to fight this. Uh, and at this point, I think I think our, our scholars under fire database uh, were just about to update it because, um, because we found that there were more attacks from the right that actually just got stepped up. There's mm -hmm. probably going to be about 700 case uh, case uh, 700 examples of trying to get professors fired since 2015. Most of those are just since 2020. Uh, hundreds of them were actually fired. Hundreds more were punished in some way. And about three dozen examples of tenured professors getting fired for what they said, wrote or taught, which, yes, tenured professors get fired, but usually for like breaking the law, like not showing up for school anymore, sexual harassment, like serious stuff. The, the what was going on here, all tenure was designed to protect really was research, pedagogy, uh, speech. And when you have three dozen professors, you know, being fired for this oh, since 2015. It, it, it's been such a strange time. I originally wanted to call the book The Gaslighting of the American Mind, but apparently <laughs> someone is writing a book with a very similar title at the moment. Well, I'll be super interested to read that book with Ricky Schlott. And I, I have been writing about cancel culture. The pushback I get is the same arguments over and over again. So I'm going to 
put those to you and ask you to respond. Okay. So number one, cancel culture is not real. Give me one example of someone actually losing their livelihood. Number two, cancel culture is just consequences of bad speech. If you don't want to be canceled, don't say bad things. Number three, I personally have never felt any danger expressing my own opinion. And number four, cancel culture is a right-wing talking point and we should not give that side any oxygen. Boy. Um, yeah. I I don't even know where to begin. I could spend the, the whole the whole hour talking about each one of them. I know. You know, you know, I was it Adam Allen Davidson, Adam Davidson from the New York Times. Um watching everybody at the New York, everybody on Twitter freak out when the New York Times just reported what comes out in every poll that yeah. Americans uh, are afraid of whatever you want to call it, but they're afraid of getting canceled. Uh, and that's white, black, liberal, conservative. They are afraid of losing their jobs for stating their honest opinions or cracking an untoward joke or even one that they thought was was PC. Uh, so it shows up everywhere. Uh, but then people dismiss it as saying like, oh, no, they're just talking about self-censoring in the good way. And it's like, OK, so you are noticing that every way we have to measure this that can be done by human beings is saying that this is a real problem, but still. And when it comes to, you know, the, the I think he was the one who said, name one case. And it was like, I wrote an article with my, uh, one of my top researchers, uh, Comey Frey, in the in the Daily Beast, being like, no, we have 700. You know, at that point, I think it was 550. Um, and, and this is, like I said, this is not, this this stacks up with some of the worst moments in censorship history in, in, in the country. Now, the right-wing talking point, I think at least, is somewhat intellectually honest. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm political, politically left of center. Most of fire staff is politically left of center. Mm-hmm. And I ha- kind of hate having to say that to some degree, because there's something very primitive that has been part of the way uh, elites in the U.S. talk, which is this presumption that if you can point out something's conservative, you don't have to take it seriously anymore. So right before the New York Times article where everybody you know lost their minds, um, we had an intern, Emma Camp. She she wrote an article making a point that should have been uncontroversial, that it's hard to have a, a difficult conversations in class or on campus these days. Again, this comes out in all the polling. And the amazing thing was watching how the debate on Twitter was so focused on whether or whether or not she was conservative. She's not, by the way. She, she's a she's definitely left of center, depending on like what city she's in. But there's also the thing that every time I, I would write this, I'd be like, but also what is wrong with us? Like basically, like you're, you're saying that if you can figure out that Emma is conservative, you don't have to listen to her anymore for saying something that basically most of us could say is true. Mm-hmm. And what were the other ones? <laughs> so that it's not real, but we've discussed the ample evidence that it is uh, the right wing talking point uh, that there are a group of people who don't ever feel like they're in danger for expressing their own opinion. My experience of those people are the people who happen to agree with sort of the dominant narratives point. The by most doctrinaire people. Yeah. yeah. And lastly, um, that it's just the consequences of bad speech, that if you're going to say bad things, you should expect really, you know, vigorous pushback. Yeah, no, I mean, and and that's the uh, that's the whole accountability culture argument, which drives me nuts because it's kind of like, oh, this is just really accountability culture. It's kind of like that's literally begging the question or, you know, like or or metaphorically. That's what that term means is essentially you're assuming the truth of your statement by making it. You're you're, assuming there's something they need to be uh, held accountable for. 
Um, and so, it, it, you know, it's one of these things where the presumption, you know, is is just already part of it. And it's amazing. Like people will will always bring up hate speech when I talk about if they're, you know, inclined to be uh, critical of, of, of free speech, First Amendment hate speech comes up immediately, which is a great PR coup for people like Richard Delgado, who've been making this argument since the 1980s. Um, and then I'm like, OK, I wrote a book on learning liberty. Uh, show me the examples in there that actually look like hate speech. You, you can find, you know, arguably some, but what people are actually getting fired for, you know, um, what, what people are actually getting punished for in a lot of cases is speech that most Americans would think of as really quite tame. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it is a very extreme time. And, and back to the sort of right wing issue, um, I thought that was so interesting. I mean, I have seen FIRE characterized before as a right wing organization, which does not make sense to me because I know you defend on all sides. Uh, but the the question about funding, I mean, the the fact is FIRE does take some funding from conservative foundations. Do you think that influences that characterization of FIRE? Uh, it, it's one of these self sort of like um, vicious cycles you get in. So mm-hmm. I, I worked at the ACLU of Northern California. I, um, I worked at the Environmenters Project, which is an environmental justice mentoring program for inner city high school kids in D.C. before that. Uh, and I worked at the Organization for Aid, Aid to Refugees in Eastern Europe, um, actually Central Europe, but uh, when I was in Prague um, in the in ninety nine. These were all groups that generally referred to themselves as nonpartisan, but pretty much only had liberals working for them. Um, And that that was, you know, uh, and yes, sometimes they did vote for different candidates, but that was, you know, either the Democrats or the Green Party, you know. Um, And I finally, you know, work at an organization that takes very seriously that not only are we nonpartisan in name, we actually try to practice what we preach by having conservatives and liberals working together. So, my, my you know, I, we had this pointed out at one point when uh, Samantha Harris, who, who's now in private practice, went to go speak at our alma mater Princeton. Mm. And they were pointing out, it's like, well, this Robert Shibley, your executive director, you know, and uh, listing things that that showed that he was conservative. I'm like, are you trying to point out a fact of which I'm extraordinarily proud that we actually have people who vote for different people in the same um, in, in the same office like that? That's actually a, a value of ours. That's something that I, I get worried if we have too many, too many left leaning people working and not enough conservatives. And everybody's in, in the organization has, has heard me say this at one point. So I I worked at organizations that were not nonpartisan in their actual staff, and they could generally get funding for left-leaning foundations. Um, we've been struggling to get funding from left-leaning uh, foundations, even though in some cases, some of these foundations, which I will not name, uh, had practice areas. They, they were like, we're, we're now soliciting you know proposals for people who defend free speech on campus. And I'm like, you mean us like we kind of <laughs> dominate the space and I still couldn't get couldn't get funding for it. So the, we're about 70 percent individual donors and we're about 30 percent foundation donors. The uh, that that 70 percent is all over the spectrum. There, there are there are an awful lot of sort of old fashioned liberals like me who still think of freedom of speech as central to uh, to our identity. And, and there are a lot of us when it comes to the uh, left, the, the left leaning foundations. That's not for lack of asking. And so this is the way I, I try to you know put put it back to the, the critic. Listen, mm-hmm. if you like what we do and you think what we're, we do is important, please say that to some of these left leaning foundations uh, that should be supporting us. Um, but if you hate us already and you're just looking for another excuse to dismiss us, which has nothing to do with what we actually do, 
why am I wasting my time? <laughs> and you, you raise an interesting point going back to the viewpoint diversity about, um, you know, viewpoint diversity on your staff. This is something I've written about in terms of the media, uh, right. how, how important it is in newsrooms that we pit bias against bias. How does having a more sort of diverse viewpoint in your organization help the functioning and the health of the organization? It makes all the difference in the world. Um, there are so many times in, you know, where we've had a case come in and, and, and it's something that might be, you know, more offensive to someone who's more left leaning or more offensive to someone who's right leaning. And having people who come from different political perspectives, they keep you honest. Because, like I said, people's brains are very adept at rationalizing the outcomes they want. And so having, you know, a, a socially conservative person there to be able to say, actually, no, I can understand, you know, why that would get someone in trouble or saying, well, and this is and this is actually something that, that's really cool that happens at FIRE is that sometimes, uh, I remember this case early on, someone had said something anti-Catholic, which to me was almost like quaint. You know, it's like, oh, wow, there, there's still people who say something anti-Catholic. Um, but I was self-conscious about it because we had a Catholic working in the, uh, at, at the, in the office at, at the time. And I, you know, I mentioned this to him and he like went right up um, and I was like, uh-oh. And he was like, yeah, we have to we have to defend this person. And I was like, that's that's what I like to see when people are kind of they start surprising you with, you know, the fact that it it doesn't work uh, always like, you know, people will defend what their faction likes and try to try to dismiss what what it doesn't. Eventually, you start getting on in these great pluralistic habits where you're kind of like, yeah, I, I despise what this person says. But was there ever any question we would defend them? Mm. Wow. And you also brought up the ACLU. Um, we saw a pretty devastating piece in The Atlantic recently from Laura Bazelon arguing that the ACLU, quote, now seems largely unable or unwilling to uphold its core values, end quote. Is FIRE's expansion a statement on what's been happening at the ACLU? Well, you know, we get this a lot. And there are great people at the ACLU, David Cole, for example, the state chapters, you know, there are people that I really respect. Nadine Strawson, um, who I I author with a lot. She's on our advisory committee. I've written a 17 part series on frequently asked questions about about freedom of speech. Uh, So we've worked with the ACLU since we were founded, you know, on cases we've done litigation. uh, We do amicus briefs, that kind of stuff. And we're happy to work with them on the in the future. So I don't I I don't like bad mouthing other, other nonprofits. I will say one advantage that we do have, though, is that the ACLU has 19 different issue areas. Uh, off campus, we have one, and that's freedom of speech. And I think that's smart. I, I think that if you try to take on too many different issues, you end up having you know the factions fighting against each other, which is one of the reasons why I, I, I wanted to be so careful and deliberate before uh, expanding fire beyond campus, because I, I definitely get the danger of mission creep. So it, after a lot of consideration, a lot of studying, a lot of uh, we, we decided to, uh, to to go national as it were. Uh, but we definitely you know, we, we want to uh, stick to free speech and just free speech. Mm-hmm. And in terms of free speech, I mean, where the culture of free speech is at, I'm thinking, you know, about the debate you did for Reason in 2020, you know, free speech law versus free speech culture. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the state of free speech culture. In mm-hmm. Canada right now, we're seeing a huge decline in that. What yeah. would you say is this? How would you characterize the state right now of, of free speech culture in the U.S.? 
Um, I am somewhat hopeful that it's starting to rebound uh, to some degree. I, I think that the sort of ideological uh, madness that, that that you saw in 2020 uh, and, and 2021, I feel like the fever might be breaking a little bit. That being said, there's still a long way to go. So when it comes to free speech culture, I, I, I find this debate with, uh, did this debate a reason with Ken White, who, who, who's a good friend um, who I've known known for a long time. Um, his main point is that this is a, a, a term uh, the free speech culture is something that gets abused oftentimes by people who are being hypocritical, being dishonest about it, being, um, you know, two faced. And that's something that he understandably gets very angry about this. He you know, he he was a Republican and, and he feels kind of betrayed by his own side. I I'm, I've never been a Republican, so I don't feel really betrayed by anybody. But the you know, I kind of I'm also someone who's very into psychology in addition to law. So I kind of, you know, the fact that people are often hypocrites on freedom of speech, obviously, it's not something I love, but it's also something I kind of accept, like th that people will come in sometimes and they'll be great on free speech in the case they like and horrible on the free speech that when they don't. OK, you know, there's just so much you know energy I can give this. And I should focus on the fact that I'm happy to have you on the team for this one. Um, we're going to be disagreeing on the next one. But for, you know, I'll, I'll work with anybody to do good. You know, the old Frederick, Frederick Douglass quote. Mm. Um, the So and when I try to explain what free speech culture is, I, I usually go to idioms that we don't use anymore um, in the U.S. You know, growing up, uh, you know, sticks and stones is probably the, the, the uh, you know, the saying that's gone out of fashion the most in a very weird way. People will actually say things like, well, we used to say sticks and stones will break my bones. Uh, what names can ever harm me? But now we know that's not true. And it's kind of like. OK, so you honestly think John Stuart Mill or any of these, you know, John Milton, for that matter, or Karl Popper weren't aware that words can sometimes hurt your feelings like badly. Of course, everyone, everyone knew that the saying is trying to teach kids to put being insulted in, in perspective, which is a great habit to learn if you're in a democratic, you know, a culture of dignity, as it's called, that essentially, you know, you should learn habits that let you experience interactions less painfully and to accept the fact that, you know, there, there are going to be people out there who hate your guts or just mean some days, et cetera. Other, and I actually went to a saying instead of an idiom, the, the, uh, the idioms are, you know, it's a free country to each their own was something that people said a lot when we were younger. Um, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, uh, walk a mile in a man's shoes. These are all good small d democratic values represented in, the, in, those little, in those little idioms. And those have largely fallen out, at least in sort of a, a elite circles. Uh, the replaced with a immediate association of free speech with what I call the three B's, the bully, the bigot, and the robber baron. Now, where do I think this comes from? Uh, I think it comes from the fact that campuses and K through 12 can't admit that they're politically homogenous and very influential. And so it makes sense that when you're in an underdog position, you argue free speech because everything else, you know, is protected either by the vote or by wealth and power. It's only unpopular views uh, that, that that need free speech or unpopular people for that matter. And the political valence of higher education has gone from being, say, two to one liberal to conservative in, in the 60s to literally some departments having no conservatives whatsoever. And, and I think six to one on, on average at this point uh, with you know departments uh, and administrators are, are far worse. But they can't admit that they are no longer the underdog. They can't admit that they are very wealthy and powerful because uh, and, and they don't 
bother to explain that part when they suddenly have discovered that free speech is actually more problematic than we thought. It's like, no, that's normal. That's what happens when people go from being out of power to in power. That's a temptation. And it was largely resisted, you know, by the way, by older liberal professors and administrators who still considered free speech central to their identity. And unfortunately, a lot of those professors have retired, uh, died, been canceled, um, or just simply outnumbered and shut up. So I think that it's it, it's really interesting that a lot of the argument against free speech is couched in terms of power by groups that can't, uh, by groups like higher ed, um, by institutions like higher ed that can't admit that they're extremely powerful. Mm, that's so interesting. and I. I just have two last quick questions for you. So you you write for Persuasion, a recent piece you co-authored with Jonathan Haidt, um, gave some advice about how to keep one's company out of the culture war. It offered eight steps for business leaders. When you think about that piece for, for the moment we're in right now, what step do you think is most relevant? I think I, I'd actually have to pick two. One is it's okay to say that my organization, uh, to say that your, your, your widget factory doesn't is politically neutral. <laughs> like it, it doesn't take positions. It wants to serve all Americans. Um, you know, and that's what that that's what Brian Armstrong did at Coinbase. And he had to mm-hmm. be willing to let 60 employees go and get and give them severance packages. But I think that overall that that, that was that was the right call. The other one um is if a if a social media mob is coming after one of your employees, slow it down. Slow the process of getting that person down, uh, because these social media mobs can make you feel like the world is ending and you have to do something right now and you have to get rid of this person. You don't even have time to look at it. You know, I've got to fire this reporter or or executive director or whatever. And if you have a a process in place saying, basically, listen, I I know that people are demanding this person be fired. We're willing to look into it, you know, if if that's even warranted, but we're not making any move for weeks. Like there's a minimal minimum two week, three week period. And the reason why that's so important is the social media mobs rely on this, this very sort of immediate sense. Um, And they tend to just find a new target. Uh, Mm if you if you let the if you run down the clock a little bit. So I do think that be- better procedural safeguards can make a huge difference in whether or not you have to, you know, depart, uh, w- w- have to sacrifice a great employee to an to an angry mob. Mm. So interesting. And lastly, uh, I'm wondering about hope. Uh, I know that you are in the trenches of the culture war. This is a very depressing time in many ways for many people. We've just come out of this really isolating, horrible pandemic, are on our way out. Um, Where do you draw your hope from to keep doing this work? Uh, A big part, uh, two two places. One is that our polling shows that black, white, liberal or conservative Americans still value freedom of speech, still love it. Um, You know, there's there's difference in what they think free speech is, depending on where they are on the political spectrum. But overall, the support for free speech is very strong. So that makes me hopeful that in our massive, uh, so our expansion is $75 million expansion. Uh, we've been able to get, and I'm you know, very, very happy to, to say this, we, about $29.5 million um, for that $75 million. The bulk of it, though, is going to sort of like a free speech public service announcement uh, program where we're doing ads all over the place, giving inspiring stories about freedom of speech. That would be something that if you're trying to, uh, you know, change the culture from one that never believed in free speech in the first place, that could be a real uphill battle. But when you realize that in a lot 
lot of cases, what you're seeing is a is pluralistic ignorance or collective illusion, as Todd Rose puts it, or um, an emperor's new clothes situation, where essentially people really just want permission to say that what they believed, you know, seven years ago is still a moral good, just the same way that they believed in it. So I think that that it is something about breaking that illusion. Uh, uh, if, if our polling is right, and it does seem to be, particularly given the response we're seeing to, you know, you know some of that material. That doesn't mean, however, that I think the next several years are going to be swell. Um, politically, the situation in the U.S. is I feel like the the left and the right are not exactly in great places at the moment, and I'm pretty you know scared of what the next you know, five years or so hold. But I'm optimistic for the long term success of freedom of speech for this reason: free speech works really well. It lets you know where the problems are in your society. It lets you be it lets you be an authentic person um, to actually you know live your truth. Um, it, it's great for artistic innovation. It's great for comedy. It's great for science. Um, so I think that the advantages of freedom of speech are sufficiently great that that uh, countries that decide they don't want it anymore are going to find that they're creating far more problems than they're solving. Mm. Well, Greg, I have great admiration and respect for your work. Thank you so much for coming on today. Real pleasure. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.